where the Afro-Latino now doesn't want to hide, wants to be seen, wants to be counted alongside his African-American brothers. Welcome to episode 58 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, we're in the second week of Hispanic Heritage Month. Whatever that means. Which I still don't understand why it starts in the middle of a month and goes into it's sort of which calendar are we? Yeah, but at? before we get into all of that, uh, we have a great rebroadcast with a great guest, Eric Velasquez, that we had him on. I believe it was like in the third, fourth episode that we did here at uh, Brown and Black. And the reason he's so crucial to the story. Of Brown and Black. It's because in the world of literature, we don't really see a lot of Afro-Latino stories. A lot of people think it's too niche, but it's more important than ever, right, Mike? Well, not only is it more important, but Eric Velasquez, and you know, he's someone I've known for many years, went to school together or whatnot. I'm sure you know how this is where you sort of, you have friends who are doing things and you kind of take for granted, or you're doing things you take for granted, and then you realize you're the first to do this. You're the first Latino host for Consumer Reports ever. You're the first. And Eric was the first children's book illustrator and author to write an Afro-Latino children's book. That's sort of mind-blowing. It is. And there was recently an article, right, that you had sent me. I mean, it just came out like a few weeks ago. Here's what's great about that article. It features four writers, and it's it's on uh, CNN style. And it talks about four writers. You know, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. This is the time where they feature these people. The title is Afro-Latinx children's books are still too rare. These four authors are trying to change that. Eric is, of course, the first featured, and then they feature three other authors. Two of them, Yesenia, and I believe it's pronounced Moises, and the other author, Charles Esperanza, are both his students. Because of who he is, they were inspired to pursue their dreams, you know, as he's, he's a teacher at School of Visual Arts. So that's really inspirational to me, just the, the idea to know that when you do something, there are people who are watching, there are people who are inspired, there are people who are doing things. Now that you've opened that door, others are going to come through. Absolutely. So we'll uh, listen to our interview that we had with Eric Velasquez and a few. But Mike, so much to talk about this week. I feel like we're going to leave stuff out, but you know what? This is why we do the podcast, just to kind of do a brain dump in here about a lot of big topics that have been really coming out now through data, research, some videos have gone viral about uh, the treatment of Latinos and Afro-Latinos and Blacks. Haitians, I'm talking about you guys. A lot going on, so why don't we begin, man? First of all, if we're gonna just touch upon the Haitian situation and you see those photos, and they look like a scene from 12 Years a Slave or, or any film like that. And, and it's disturbing where we're headed as a culture in that there's this mythos that has been bought into. Let's not even get into the origin of the actual cowboy as there were no white cowboys. There were cattlemen. 
But the idea that this guy, whoever he is, these men are on horseback with chaps and whips and cowboy hats going after other human beings, corralling them as if they were animals. What's the most disturbing about it is that it's happening under a quote-unquote democratic administration. That's right. And uh, Sonny Hostin, an anchor from The View, recently just went viral because of comments that she made on the juxtaposition between the way the United States are treating Afghan families and the way they're treating Haitian families. You and I talked about Mm -hmm. this, Whoopi. We saw it when it, it first came to the demonizing of Haitians when it came to the AIDS crisis. That's right. It doesn't have to be that way because we know that the United States can do it. There is a way to do it. There's just no will to do it because the United States and the White House has promised to bring 95,000 Afghans here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be brought here because they should be, right? Yeah. That is the promise of yeah. this country. But if you can bring 95,000 Afghans here, then why are you sending 86 Haitians back on an airplane yeah. to a country that has been devastated? Yeah. Mike, you had sent me this video, man. And actually, I didn't even know it, but... It went viral. Like a lot of people were talking about it. And this really puts into context how the world really, truly feels about Haitians and about the color black. Could it be, Mike, that that Afghans that we've listen, the darker you are, the worse it's going to be for you. That's the deal here on this planet. They villainize Latinos. They villainized Muslims. The concept that they could be spending resources to actually fly people back to a a place that's suffered from COVID and, and we're in the middle of pandemic, let's not forget that, and, and had earthquakes and all kinds of devastation, had their leader assassinated, and we could be shipping these people back there. If another country was doing this, we'd be all over it. That's right. And it's all because they're black. And that's the black truth about it, man. There is no other way to hide it. It's ugly. It's sad. It's pathetic. It's disturbing. And if you just, if you have eyes, you see what's going on. You don't have to back it up with data, but you can back it up with data, but you have eyes. And it's sickening. It's just absolutely sickening to see the blatant offense of Haitians who are black, mostly black. You know, this brings me back to to the issue that the media also has. And I'm not sure if you've been hearing about this uh, Gabby Petito uh, death. Of course I have. Of course. How could I miss it? If I didn't care, I I, I couldn't miss it either way. A lot of people are going, okay, hold on a second. What's so special about uh, the death of Gabby Petito? She just seems to be another person amongst the many hundreds and hundreds of missing teenagers uh, of different ethnicities and races that have been killed, sequestered, kidnapped. Let's be straight. Missing non-white people. All right. All right. And no one seems to quite understand exactly why she in particular became the topic for almost a week in almost every major newspaper, including the New York Post, that put her on in one week three times on the cover. So people are going, what's going on? And then on Joy Reid's show on MSNBC, she was there talking about exactly how it is possible that this white girl is getting this amount of coverage, uh, unbeknownst to anyone, of why, 
But black and Latina and anyone of color who have been killed and sequestered never got that coverage. What could it possibly be? Here's what they said. And there's a case to stay with you for a moment, Lynette. There's a um, Dateline uh, did a story about there's a woman named Carla Yellowbird. Um, she disappeared in 2016. Um, it, 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 you were quoted in this story talking about her. And this is a case that is so long ago. You know, it was obviously during a presidential election year. There was a lot going on. How can we do better in terms of getting that same kind of attention? This is not a young, you know, sort of blonde white woman. Um, and so the media sort of lets it go. Yeah, I think everybody plays a part. I think it's when we talk about, you know, um, we talk about law enforcement, we talk about uh, media coverage. You know, if you don't have blonde hair and blue eyes, I mean, our stories do not make it to the six o'clock news. We barely may get a story into the paper. You know, however, I just think it takes everybody coming to the table, addressing the issue, being accountable, and making sure that when somebody goes missing or murdered in our community, um, that it's equally presented and have a sense of urgency. So, Mike, essentially what they're saying is, is that there's a form of prejudice and racism in the media because they're so white that they only pick the stories that affect them, their circles, their families, their schoolmates. But if it's anything Hispanic or black, they probably don't have that many friends like that. So who gives a shit about you guys? Let's make this a white media, white circle media. And if one of our own dies, we'll cover it while everybody's a witness to that. But if one of yours dies, yeah, good luck. Why don't you go to Univision and Telemundo and have them cover it? Because who gives a shit about you guys? Here's, there's a few things here. I'll just say these three quick things. One, it's obvious why she's getting the attention. Look at her. She's blonde. She's white. She's, you know, young. She's the Washington Post even described her like that. So what do you think that does to the narrative? Listen, uh, uh, there's a there's a young black man that went missing a month ago named Jelani Day and his mother put out a, a video this week as well. And she basically said this. Jelani's been missing for 24 days. And I um. I know about Gabby, the missing girl. She's been missing for two days and her face is plastered everywhere and the FBI is involved. And I do not understand why. Jelani doesn't get that same coverage. Jelani doesn't get that same attention because just like Gabby is important and I, I can sit in this seat and say, I know what her mother is feeling like because she wants her child back. I want my child back too. And I want them to look for my child like they're looking for her. He is not a nobody, he is somebody. And I want him to come back home. I want them to give my son the same attention. And it makes me mad because this young white girl is getting that attention. And my young black son is not. The, the second thing that I feel is strong here, and this is what's the most disturbing about all of this for me, is that as horrifying as this is, those images in Haiti, uh, I mean, of these Haitian immigrants, as horrifying as all the statistics we heard about children being molested in, in, in all these, these uh, holding places where they were holding these immigrants, and as horrifying as we heard all the things that we hear about that are horrifying, that are wrong, that are racist, that, that the abortion law, after a while, 
we just get used to it. Yeah, we normalize it. We become numb to it. After a while, that image of this white cowboy is whipping this black man on the border of this country that's supposed to be, you know, has a statute welcoming immigrants. After a while, that image becomes just another image. It's, it's, it could be a Marlboro ad. You've seen it. It's iconic, but it doesn't have any impact. And that is the most disturbing part about human nature to me is that we are bombarded. Whatever we're talking about this week, next week, we could be listing all the other horrifying, awful things that are injustices to people of color. So people of color being treated like crap in the midst of. Uh, you know, they just killed the police reform bill. I, I'm sure you heard in the it, it doesn't matter. It nothing will change because and we said it before. This is a society that only cares about making money. Bro, the United States just killed 10 civilians on a drone missile. They apologize in the most business corporate like ways like, uh, you know, it was it was a mistake on our end. And, uh, you know, we'll pay the family. Dude, you just made it sound so transactional. What? Where's your humanity? So, yeah, that's that's the culture we live in. That's, you know, you were talking last week about uh, the American dream. And, and what is the American dream? The American dream is to be rich enough to not give a fuck. And if you're not rich, you can be distracted enough to not give a fuck. We're going to go to our interview with uh, Eric Velasquez, but I just want to quote from him uh, something that I thought was powerful in terms of why he decided to write his book, Grandma's Records. And this is from the article that was written about him. And he says, those summers inspired my book, Grandma's Records, and it also taught me the importance of hiring heroes who look like us. He says, I remember marveling at musicians who would visit when I was young, including Rafael Cortijo the prime architect of Puerto Rican salsa. When he came by, my grandmother told me to refer to him as maestro. That man is a genius, she said, and he deserves to be treated with respect. In school, when we learned that Beethoven was a musical genius, I remember thinking, I know a genius too. He loves rice and beans and roast pork and even entertains us with music after dinner. I didn't feel that there was a disconnect between the concerts of genius and what I saw around me. He said, but over time, he realized other kids struggled to do the same. At art school, when they pictured heroes... They would never draw men or women of color. He said, that's when I started to realize just how important representation is. Yeah, not only there, but also self-esteem for children growing up reading these books. Uh, so important. I mean, I'm so glad that finally Mattel's deciding to do, you know, Latino Barbies, Black Barbies, uh, dolls that at a very young age start normalizing a sense of multiculturalness uh, within the United States, that we are all equal and we're all the same. And that like, I don't want to be forced. I, I don't want to have a kid in, you know, 2021 that's forced to just see the world through a white gaze. Uh, I don't want to force them to do that. They need to be multicultural that way that there's no hate amongst other, that they don't feel superior to anybody else. And that begins with books. That begins at a young age. That begins seeing ourselves in dolls, in literature, in film, and in, in, in YouTube videos, and and whatever you know channels and shows that are promoting this in the media and entertainment. That's what kids consume. So, damn it, man, Eric Velasquez, thank you for all your contributions, man. This is this man is an icon. 
introduce our guest, who is Eric Velasquez. He's an author, illustrator, a son of Afro-Puerto Rican parents. He went to High School of Art and Design, and he also attended the School of Visual Arts and is currently a professor at FIT. Eric, welcome to Brown and Black. Wow. Well, thank you, Mike Sargent. It's great <laughs> to be here, and it's great to be here also with Jack Rico. How are you, uh, Eric? I, I've been uh, I've been wanting to talk to you about uh, the climate that we're in, and obviously your Afro Latino background and image representation, and how you have contributed to try and make the world look and reflect more of who we are, as opposed to this one particular dominant group, the white group. Can you begin telling us when you decided to start creating illustrations and books, essentially telling stories about the Afro-Latino experience? It all began when I decided to write Grandma's Records back in 2001. I wanted to tell the story of spending summers with my grandmother. And at the time, there were no books that featured any Afro-Latinos in it. Of course. My editor was really excited at the idea of, of me writing the uh, story. However, I, I started noticing that among my friends, particularly uh, my Puerto Rican friends, they weren't so enthusiastic. Uh, you sure the world really wants to hear about the summers you spent with your grandmother? Really? Just, you know, who, who wants to hear that? So I really had to shut off all those voices and sit down to write the story and fortunately, the book is still in print. It sells all over the world, wherever there are Latinos. I get letters to this day. People are discovering that they have a relationship with their grandchildren through sharing old music and records. Mm. People have come to see me while I'm signing the books at the various book signings that I've done. They've traveled for like four hours and they tell me, oh, I drove all, <laughs> all night to come and meet you. One woman came to one of my signings with her daughter and, uh, you know, they just burst into tears when they oh, sh wow. shook my hand because she says there's like such a lack of representation. This woman said, I wanted my daughter to meet you and just shake your hand to let her know that it's possible that people that look like us have achieved things. So when, when I wrote Grandma's Records, I had no idea that it would have this kind of uh, impact, hmm. so, which then led to the sequel, Grandma's Gift, eventually led me to Schomburg, the man who built the library, and the newest title, um, Octopus Stew. Wow. We, we sort of, I don't feel we glossed over it, but we, it's one of those things that you can say very casually, that there were no children's books for dark Latinos, for Afro-Latinos. There were no children's books. How that many children's correct. books are out there? I mean, would you say? I mean, you're a children's book illustrator. You've illustrated over 30 books. Yes. When I did Grandma's Records, it was the only book of its kind. And now I'm so uh, happy to see so many books that feature Afro-Latinos. I meet Afro-Latino authors now all the time. I, I've been called the OG by <laughs> Elizabeth <laughs> Acevedo, who won the National Book Award and is a, you know, a very respected poet and author in her own right. Uh, but I, I'm so proud of the fact that I've, I've kind of opened that door. I even had a student, his name was Charles George in my class. And one day after class, by all accounts, he seemed like, a, a you know, he was uh, African-American. So he um, approaches me one day after class and he says, Professor, I need to tell you something. Um, because of you, I've decided to put my, <laughs> add my last name 
to my name again. And it didn't make any sense because it's like, well, Mr. George, I mean, is it it your name Charles George? It's like, what other last name do you have? He says, my real name is Esperanza and my parents are from Puerto Rico like you. And because I don't look Puerto Rican. Wait, wait, what is what is a Puerto Rican supposed to look like? Aha. So this this young guy had been getting crap all his life since he was in kindergarten to the point where he decided to drop his last name. Um, so I, I found that amazing. And the thing is that I am so proud of this young man because he's a published illustrator, author illustrator. He's now pretty famous. And I consider him, he's one of my art sons at this point, you know, I, <laughs> I understand. Eric, you know, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about in our previous episode was about image representation and the yes. importance of that image representation. In America, there is a particular problem with image representation, but in Latin American countries, colorism is probably even deeper than the actual racism, you know? Yes. How difficult has the Afro-Latino community, yourself included, has that been punishing for someone like you? And why is this colorism supremacy still in play on novellas, on Univision and Telemundo, on People in Espanol magazine where they prefer lighter colors, even though we're Hispanic and we understand the plight of the Hispanic in the United States of America. But these American Hispanic institutions, for some reason, they're executives, they're actors, they're writers, every single level you barely see dark skin people in power, even in our own companies. Why do you think that is? And how do we change something like that? That's been around a long time. And I know from uh, watching several documentaries, there were countries like Cuba and Puerto Rico that were doing business with the United States at the beginning of the century, uh, the, uh, the 20th century. They were doing business with the United States and, and the um, representatives from the United States would refuse to do any business with people that were, you know, dark, let's say, mm. and preferred to do business with people that had European features. So as a result, people that were more, let's say, that looked like me, um, that had African features were kind of moved out of those upper positions, particularly working, let's say, in sugarcane, coffee, let's say, and they moved in the people with the European features. So a lot of that came by way of the United States and maybe other um, European countries that were doing business, you know, with with the people of the Caribbean, from what I understand from the documentaries that I've seen. I just don't understand how that's not Nazi-esque. It really sounds like a German (laughs) speaking about a Jew in World War II. Yeah, but I think in in the Caribbean, we've politely chosen to look away, just look the other way. And we have this expression in, in, in Puerto Rico, in particular, Santulce. I déjalo. I'll let it go. You know, it's no big deal. You know, we'll, we'll just let them get away with this and, and it'll be OK. We'll, we'll, you know. And that like passive attitude towards racism has, I think, hurt the Afro-Latino in the long run. Fortunately for me, I had a very strong grandmother who was born in 1909 and would constantly tell me about a time in Puerto Rico where her family was basically the top of the food chain. They were they were very middle class. They were all literate. And she would say everything changed when they arrived. Now, in school, 
you know, it was like, well, who are you talking about? Who arrived? And she would say, well, when, when the whites arrived. But I thought they came with Columbus. And she would say, oh, what am I going to do with this kid? You know, he doesn't know anything. So she would say that everything was fine until they arrived. And, I, and she would always just say it like that with no further explanation. And thanks to Henry Louis Gates and his documentary. Yeah, Black and in Latin America. I love, I love, love, love that. Love that. That is one of the greatest resources to really, truly understand uh, colorism. This is why this Black Lives Matter movement is not exclusively American. I think this is a global issue. Absolutely. And it begins in Hispaniola. It begins in Peru, in Mexico, in Brazil, where their slave trade was so profuse. Each city that slave trade landed on, each city became the mecca of its uh, periphery. To understand how they treated them is a better understanding of how we got to, to the way America treats blacks, except that the difference, like you said a little while ago, the difference between Latin American racism and American, North American, United States, American racism, two different octaves, man. They're in two different gears. One is full 10 blasts and the other one is like a five or a six. It is so intense here. Fortunately here, you're more likely to get a pushback. Like in the 1960s with the wonderful Black Panther movement and, you know, Malcolm X, you know, the pushback was there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it inspired a lot of people of the, uh, the Caribbean. But now there's this really great awakening that's, that's occurred that, that I think my, my grandmother would be so happy that it, it's happening uh, where the Afro-Latino now doesn't want to hide, wants to be seen, wants to be counted alongside his African-American brothers. So that's pretty much how, how I see it. But thanks to him, Louis Gates, who actually confirmed everything my grandmother was saying, because there he explained the Royal Decree of Graces, where Spain was issuing this one-way ticket to anyone, um, not just in Spain, but Europe, that would want to come to Puerto Rico and Cuba and Dominican Republic. Oh, that's the immigration law from 1906. Yep, and it ran all the way into the 1920s. And they were offered incentives. They funded their flights. They funded yeah. their life in these countries because of el blanqueamiento, the, the whitifying of their, yep. those two countries because they wanted to eradicate the skin color so bad that they took their heroes like uh, Antonio Maceo. Maceo. And yep. in the Dominican Republic, the three, you know, Jorge Duarte, uh, yep. these <laughs> men that were obviously black, you start noticing that throughout history, they start becoming a lot more white. Image Absolutely. representation again. The sort of the cleansing of that black color off of their skin to be able to match the one of their oppressors. What were your thoughts on Coco? Oh, I really loved that movie. It won an Oscar. Um, yes. It had dark skin cartoon characters from Mexico. Yes. I loved it. I loved it. I yes. spoke to the directors, Mr. Molina, uh, who was one of them. And we had a conversation about how important representation of a brown color, right? Yes. On a Pixar movie meant because it was essentially saying, enter the members only club that we've had just for ourselves. But now, you know, your story and your color can now be also included in our storytelling. 
I thought that that was so key for self-esteem yeah. for kids that are watching that. And for whites also who are watching and going, oh, I guess brown color isn't so fearful either. I, I think it validates kids of color, but it also instills in the white children and or you know adults that these other people are just as valid. Mm-hmm. You right, know? right, right. And their stories are just as beautiful. They have a reason to be proud too. And the thing is that within the Latino culture, which I've noticed more so than in African-American culture, I think well, American culture, there's this inherent need to so-called put you in your place whenever you're feeling good about yourself or you're, or you're smiling or you're happy. Someone needs to say, um, you know, what all you- lives matter. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Why are you laughing? What You yeah, know, and it's yeah, like, yeah. wow, like I have... I am not well, you know, allowed to smile. My take on that is it's at their expense. You know, oh, I feel that they, wow. they feel it's at their expense. It's not like you can't, no, you can't have what I have because then I won't have it. They don't see it. They won't define it as privilege. You know, I think it's more subconsciously they see it as superiority. So if you try and take a moment, uh, if you try and draw attention away, that's, you know, I saw a woman got a tattoo, white lives matter, you know? And, and it's like, okay, but it doesn't need to be said because the culture is saying it for you in every single way. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, but that's not enough because now some fraction of the culture is not saying that. No way. No way. Get back in your place. Right. Right. And now what they really want to say is white lives are all that matter. And that's the problem. Exactly. Exactly. That's the problem. Question that Jack had in one of the previous podcasts about how Afro-Latinos were interpreting everything that was happening. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you that. Essentially, I've always felt like the Afro-Latino is in a dual situation because they're receiving the colorism and racism in their own Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some point they're going to be like, well, let's get out of here. And then they come to America and they get it even worse. That's correct. And I've been thinking about that since you posed a question. And I think ultimately for the Afro-Latino, those of us that identify as Afro-Latino, my alliance will always be to Africa and Africanism. You know, this, Mm. I see myself as an African first, not as a Latino. That's, that's just the language and, and part parts of the culture. But if you come to visit my home, you're going to find not just um, art supplies, but you're going to find congas, un bongo, we got a weedo. We, you know, so I am, and these are instruments that originate in in Africa, you know. Uh, So my heart and, and my soul are still African first. So you, you keep the, uh, the rest <laughs> because with the African, I got, I got the music and I got a lot of the food, including pasteles. I'm, I'm a happy camper. There, and, I, and I think yeah. only because it includes pasteles. There you go. There are some uh, African-Americans in this country that feel like the Afro-Latino because they're not purely black. Mm -hmm. 
and because they're a different iteration of black to them, that they cannot be included in the Black Lives Matter movement. Their argument is you can support us, but you ain't us. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jack Rico. <laughs> um, really? You know, no, I, I really, it's like I, I am as African-American as any African-American there is. Um, like I said, I'm an African first. So, and I've never encountered that. I've had um, discussions with friends that are African-American. There's an, an illustrative friend that, that I really, really um, hold very near and dear to my heart. Uh, one time actually approached me with, with that idea. It's like, you know, he said he feared that I thought of myself as greater than the African-American. Mm. And, and I was really hurt, you know, because I had at that point had known him for about 15 years. And I was really hurt by that comment because I was in his home. We were having dinner and I looked at him and I and I basically said, a woman in Africa gives birth to two children. Unfortunately, on that same day, she's kidnapped. She's grabbed. She's taken on a on a slave ship headed for America. The ship makes three stops. And one of the stops is Cuba. And one of her, she's separated from one of her uh, children and he's left there. The other stop is South Carolina where they're 1619. Exactly. And what I told him was with tears in my eyes, I said, 400 years later, those two brothers see themselves, see each other across a subway platform and they lock in a stare Wow! with the notion, I know you, I know you from somewhere, but I don't know where. And that's how I pretty much met my friend um, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> but, but we would look at each other because we were the only two brothers uh, on, on the subway with, with portfolios. Hmm. And it's like, hmm, I don't know him from the School of Visual Arts, I, but I know I know him from somewhere. Uh, and eventually the, um, I, I did um, approach him, introduce myself, only to find out, find out that he was a very famous illustrator. Um, but that's how I always see it, that we're all the, we're the same people. Now, the, the ironic thing is that my friend says that whenever he's um, in, you know, uh, in, in Spanish Harlem, let's say, or visiting the Hispanic society, looking at the wonderful paintings by Joaquin Sorolla, he said people come up to him and speak Spanish to him, and he doesn't understand <laughs> why. <laughs> because, because you look like you're Afro-Latino. Mike gets that a lot from Dude, Dominicans. Dude, listen, up here, when I'm, listen, up where I live, I used to say I live in the Dominican Republic. I mean, people, <laughs> listen, I mean, I'd go to the store, now, I've been here a long time now, but I go into the store, they start speaking Spanish to me, and I'm like, uh, no comprende. And they're like, why don't you speak Spanish? Like, are you one of yeah, those why Latinos? Don't you speak Spanish? Yeah. yeah. I've said learn. this to him yeah, so yeah. many times. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah, you two do the rest of the show in Spanish now. And it's like, well, too bad. Too bad. It'll hurt. <laughs> oh, man. A couple things you said really struck me, what both of you said, just about brotherhood which is part of the point of this show. The thing that I'm probably pleased most about what's happening right now is that we can have these conversations and people are interested in hearing these conversations. Conversations about race may not be comfortable 
but they still have to happen. And this is what what they've been avoiding for yes. 400 years, man, is yes. to have right, this right. conversation. But it's not just between black and white. It is between brown and black. We're much stronger together. There have been many times where the, the white patriarchy has kept back a group, whether it was women, whether it was workers, whether it was Latinos, whether it was blacks, whether it was Asians. And if all of those who were not getting a fair shake in this society came together, none of these things could be happening because we would represent more than the majority. Mm -hmm. And their biggest fear is everything we're talking about, not just coming together, becoming the majority, not just becoming the majority, but also they talk about the purification and the pure race and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly it's ludicrous to be holding on to that considering history, but the fact that all of us here, because I'm Caribbean, I'm British, I, I've got mixed blood in me. I, I wouldn't have hair on my chest if I didn't. You, you are, are of mixed heritage, Eric. Jack, yeah. you're of mixed heritage. You've got Native American. And we are still brothers. We still can look at each other across the intellectual and the spiritual divide and recognize each other. American racism, they've taken it to a whole other social construct. They, they created it with intention to yes. oppress. And so that part to me is so damn like, how do you unlearn that? Which is the reason I've been telling Mike, uh, you know, Eric, I, I, I think that there's, I mean, th this smells of the Civil War of 1865. Wow. How many videos have you seen of rednecks with guns saying if they defund the police, uh, we're coming out to get you? Because mm. who's going to save you now? Cornell West recently said, you're lucky that we're asking for equality and we're not trying to construct the black Ku Klux Klan. Wow. It's true. There isn't violence. Blacks and minorities don't want violence against whites, but for some reason they think that that's... The fear is retaliation. You know, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no one who is dominant, even if you want to let go of your dominance, you can't. Well, why would you? Even if you well, why but that's would you? The, well, <laughs> that's the whole you, point. Why would to, maybe your your daughter is gay and you're you're a, a well known straight white male politician? Maybe I mean there are reasons why you might consider it, but you have a lot of reasons not to let that shit go. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I think that this isn't going to be easy. We're just not going to make a bunch of changes, and it's like okay, you know, they're going to relent to us. Policies won't change the mentality. The mindset, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be here to stay. What we have to be able to do is equal footing with them. And I don't know how else that's going to be done. That's why I'm thinking, not that I want it, but just like the Civil War had to happen. I don't know how it won't happen here. I'm not I, because I, I and I'm, I want to hear your point, but I again I have to disagree because I feel that the war is already happening. I think it's a different battlefield. That's all. But go ahead, Eric. Mm -hmm. I want to hear what you're saying. And I and I also disagree with you, Jack. I I I think this is a different generation. And what I saw among those marchers was just a different like resolve. Um, I'm old enough to remember the marches, you know, uh, the civil rights marches, and I've done quite a bit of work uh, and research um, in that area. This, this is a very, very different thing here. When you have all these, not just white kids, but kids of all different ethnicities out there That's marching. True. It's a very multicultural movement. Yeah. So when you say civil war, um, I'm, I'm pretty much accustomed to seeing it black against white. Yeah, it ain't the Avengers movie, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Iron Man against uh, Captain kind of America. Like, uh, Captain America. <laughs> Perhaps this this is more like the open-minded versus the ignorant. Now, I feel that it's a it's a war of values. It's a war of conflict, a conflict of ideals. That's the war that we're fighting. That the battleground, the the red states, the blue states. That's the media. The media mm. plays a huge right. role. Mm, you know, representation. True, who who are some of the casualties? What are some generals that went down? The editor at at a major uh, a newspaper. The the editor at a major magazine. These are some of the casualties of that social war. And it is a war of values. And that is the war we're in right now because. To me, this is was the rallying cry. Like the war's been going on. This is like we had the battle of the this, we had the battle of that. <laughs> we are now. This is my opinion. We will look back on this and realize, you know, there have been cold wars, there have been nuclear yeah. wars, there have been all kinds of wars. And this is the war we're in now. It is a civil war, but it is absolutely a war utilizing very different kind of propaganda is probably one of the most biggest weapons of mass destruction happening right now because it's influencing minds and brainwashing. Like, forget Hiroshima. You could take out a lot more people with a brainwash bomb. We've, they threw that bomb 400 years ago, man. We're still, like, feeling the effects of it. Eric, so how do you see us repairing this? What yes. ways can we use to reconstruct and redesign an America yes. that helps us? <laughs> Yes, Professor Velasquez. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Tell us. Teach us. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're doing it right now by having the discussions. And, you know, we, we're in a country that shies away from discussions on race. Yes. And as a result, it's held us back as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, from progressing forward. Um, so I think the be, the be, this is the beginning, having these discussions. I, I know, Mike, you said in the last podcast that you have now white friends that have like reached out to you and they, <laughs> yeah. they're apologizing. <laughs> they, what can they do? And I've gotten those emails as well. We need to have these conversations and we need to also be truthful. People that have uh, benefited from a particular type of privilege, they really need to, to own up to that. We have to do the work. We have to keep these discussions going. Uh, and we have to all be truthful with one another. Got to be doing like what we talked about last week, what, what T.I. is doing and, and what LeBron James is doing. Mm -hmm. Pushing. You got to keep pushing. Keep pushing. Get relentless. Yeah, that's it. We have to be relentless. And I feel like that's part of our DNA anyway. That is our power. What we've already seen in the 15 to 21 days that this has all been going down, less than a month, the leadership that has arisen because of what this is about – because this is not just economic, it's not just social, it's not just racial. All of these things that have created the society that we're in. The biggest difference I can cite is the difference between this, talk about the civil rights movement, but let's not forget Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street yeah. is something that could have made significant change. Everybody got it, but there was no leadership. There was no right. direction. It was way too democratic, okay. I think. It, it, it was just way too many, you know, white people wanting to have something to, to, to do. Okay, that's really what it became. What I remember most during that time is that groundswell. People kept coming out. People were with it. Occupy everything happened. Yeah, that's a millennial generation thing. That's a that's definitely a millennial generation. Yes, I had yeah. the whole quote unquote leadership group, the dozen of them that started it. I had them all on my show at the same time during the height of the movement. 
but there was no real leadership. There was no real agenda. So nothing got accomplished. But, but I think the objectives were not clear to everyone. Exactly. As opposed to what's happening now, the objectives are very clear. They're being echoed every single day. That's why I'm more optimistic. I, I understand Jack's pessimism because I, I look at these videos and, and social media and what these cops are doing, and what they're getting away with and how they treat men, women, children. That's what elderly. I see. That's what I see. And, and, and that that evil is the one that I feel yeah. that is out to defend and resist. Now, by the way, I totally agree with what you guys say. I actually see it more like that as well, but it's almost like I have to see it to believe it. I've seen a lot of movements implode. I've seen a lot. The Me Too movement imploded. You haven't heard anything about Me Too. Like after Harvey Weinstein was put in jail, it's almost like, well, we got our catch. We kind of should stop. In the first 15 days of this, you have not even heard a peep out of Me Too. I, it's not that they imploded, but like not a peep. So that's that's interesting. But I still say it paved the way. It paved the way. It, it, showed, way. it showed. It paved the way. It showed the power, okay, of the 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 thought of the moment. Yes, the, the I, concern I so. of the moment, and it showed how powerful that can be. And it it sh again the, to use the a word like I used to try and use it every week, accountability. Ah, so where can people find <laughs> you and your books and everything? I could be found on Facebook, Eric Velasquez. I'm on Twitter, Eric Velasquez, New York, at Eric Velasquez, New York, uh, Instagram, Eric underscore Velasquez. And you can uh, find me on uh, when, wherever books are sold. Amazon. Amazon, sure. And uh, independent bookstores. My latest book is Ruth Objects, The Life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the book prior to that that I authored, Octopus Stew, is out there, and you can find me. <laughs> I'm not it's, I think it's interesting that you didn't mention ericvelasquez.com. And ericvelasquez.com. <laughs> did not mention that. <laughs> hey, why, Mark, why does Mark uh, Ron Zuckerberg get uh, the plug? <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, it was a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for enlightening us about your work, your art, and your thoughts uh, on what's going on right now. It was a pleasure talking to you as well, Jack, Rico. I've been a fan now for a few years. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts. And hablando se entiende. Hablando se entiende. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Had yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, whatever. Some kind of moment. That's it for this 58th episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirana. Next week, we'll be rebroadcasting our interview with Estuardo Rodriguez, the CEO of Friends of the American Latino Museum. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.